on the Overton Window podcast, we look at issues around the country and talk to the people who change what is politically possible. Today, Alicia wants to know about the Supreme Court, and there's no one better to answer her questions than Cliff Taylor, who served on the Michigan Supreme Court from 1997 to 2008 and twice served as, uh, as Chief Justice. Cliff, welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. So I'll start us off. Uh, James and I can't even remember how long ago it's been. We're talking about, you know, national level politics and all this stuff, all the hubbub, all the time about, you know, the federal Supreme Court and what's going on. And we kind of got talking about like, well, obviously there's a state level. Why is it everything gets so overshadowed? Like which has the bigger impact on life and things like that. So we had this good conversation. Of course, he stopped like, wait, I have a guy for that. So um, you're, you're the guy. And I'm not sure I thought about this a bit of like how to get into the conversation because I, I do think it's curious. Like, do we start with how is it different? How's it organized? What the impact is? And so I'm kind of curious, um, is there like, is it that the state Supreme court has a greater impact on state citizens or is it the national level? Like, how do you see how we're being, I don't know, influenced by court decisions. Like, are we just unaware? Are we oblivious as citizens and should we not be? Well, I think that the state Supreme Court has a different kind of role than the federal Supreme Court, the United States Supreme Court. Both of them have a lot of effect on the uh, way the citizens in their state live. But uh, uh, I think probably for day-to-day things, um, whether or not you can have a handgun whether or not you can um, uh, 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 do something with, with tort law or something of that kind, the, the state Supreme Court probably has a greater impact on great big cosmic things, whether or not, um, whether or not there'll be an ability to have a prayer before school starts, whether or not you have to give special kind of rights to certain people, voting time, and so on, the federal one does. The United States. As they say, the U.S. Supreme Court. Are courts different from state to state? So I, before we kind of got into this, I want to do some of my own, you know, looking around. Obviously, I've lived in Michigan. I vote all of that. But, you know, not being familiar with other states, like, is there a model state courts follow or is our Supreme Court different? How does that how does that work? I think all of the state Supreme Courts in the country have pretty much the same jurisdiction um, everything that goes through the Michigan judicial system, first of all, there, there, there are two levels of courts in the country. There's the federal uh, courts, which uh, are run out of Washington, D.C., and then there are the state courts, which are run out of the state capitol. Um, those courts um, are, uh, both in both cases, those, those courts are uh, the ultimate authority on the questions they're asking. Not every case gets to the U.S. Supreme Court or the state Supreme Court because the way the world works, uh, the court gets to decide in both cases, the United States Supreme Court and the Michigan Supreme Court, get to decide what cases they're going to hear. This is not the case, for example, with the criminal courts in your county in Michigan or in Ohio or wherever uh, one is uh, modeling. But uh, yes, the, the, the courts get to decide whether or not they're going to hear it, and they, they have a consequential effect. The same number of justices, you know, 
No. Is it state level? Is, it that all, is all different, though? Yeah. Um, the United States Supreme Court has changed a lot over the years with the, the number they have. They started out mm -hmm. with a given number. I think it was five initially. Then it went down to uh, seven and up to nine and so on. Mm -hmm. But from the time of roughly the American Civil War on, the court has had the same number of justices. In Michigan, we have seven. Right. But been, it's been lower at times. The, the the important thing about the number of them is you better make it an odd number. You're right. You need, to, you need to be able to make decisions here, right? Yeah. Well, no, not so much that. But you'll get you'll get uh, splits in right. how, how the case should be decided. You want to have an odd number so you get a, a winning side, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Now, that's something I've been curious about, too, uh, that the different state Supreme Courts, you know, states have different constitutions. They have different laws. They all have Supreme Courts. But uh, how different are Supreme Court rulings in other states when uh, on the similar conflicts that arise? So, for instance, like we have a rule in, in our, our Supreme Court ruling about what differentiates a fee from a tax. And that could have gone very different ways in other states. Yes. The courts, uh, the the individual state courts, uh, do have different opinions on these things, and uh, in large part, it depends on who's serving. I mean, who, what kind of people and what kind of philosophy they have. Um, it, it's you know, you're, you're probably acquainted with the name Antonin Scalia. He was the great United States Supreme Court justice who died five six years ago. A, a very important figure in the history of our country, and. He led a he led a movement which was an important movement, and that was that it shouldn't you should to the degree possible minimize the kind of different results you get because you have different people hearing it. In other words, a case should produce the same outcome in every state supreme court mm -hmm. uh, if the system is working correctly. And and his view on how you do that is you attempt determine what the people who passed this law that was under consideration, what they understood this to mean, the, the statute to mean. And um, that's, it's harder to disagree about that. So, uh, you know, but, but what's easier to disagree about is what, it, what you would like it to mean. If you, you know, not what they thought it meant, but what you'd like it to mean. So that's been a great fight in American law. Well, to follow up on that, I mean, that seems like, uh, can you give me an example of the opinion you've been a part of that led to a policy that you disagreed with, but in interpreting the law the way that, uh, the way that you thought was appropriate, forced you to get there? Um, probably um, 20 years ago, something of that sort, we had a case where the state legislature had determined that anyone who wanted to have, carry a firearm could. It was called a concealed carry statute. And th this was a very controversial act. Um, the American citizens were split on this. You know, half of them thought that you should be able to carry a gun if you wanted to. And um, the other half, so to speak, uh, thought the opposite. And um, the legislature had, had uh, passed a, uh, the statute, and they had put in this statute 
a, a monetary appropriation. I can't remember anymore how much it was. I think it was a million dollars, which was to be used for the education of the people of the state regarding firearms. Now, when this, when this happened, um, there were people in Michigan who were hostile to firearms, private persons carrying firearms, who wanted to do a referendum on that. A referendum is a vote of the people on the statute, where they get to decide if they want to have this statute or not have it. But in an effort to avoid the abuse of this power, the, the constitutional amendment had, when written, said that if there was an appropriation in the uh, uh, authorizing statute, there could not be a referendum. Am I getting too far into the weeds? You know, do you understand this? Okay, good. The, I live and breathe this stuff. Yeah, we were I, I arguing about it earlier today in conjunction with the right to work. But, uh, too, so. Well, at any event, but at least. So when I wrote this opinion, um, I was of the view that this was an appropriation and therefore there couldn't be a referendum. The opposing side to this uh, was outraged by the fact that the legislature, they thought, had put this million-dollar appropriation in the bill only to preempt the authority of the people to, to uh, have a referendum on whether or not they wanted this statute. And, and my position on this was it didn't make any difference what the motive of the legislature was. You're never going to know that in the first place. Mm -hmm. But even if you did know it, that's their power. And when they decide to put an appropriation in, that's what it means. So mine was, I guess what you'd say, for most discussions of this thing, the conservative position. And the, the non-conservative position was the one that said, well, we get to look behind this thing and see what we think about why they did it. And I didn't think that courts had that ability and I still don't. And uh, it was a highly controversial thing. I mean, there, at the time, there were 16 newspapers in the state that uh, had editorial pages of consequence. And all 16 were opposed to it because they didn't like the idea of the statute. But that was not what we were asked to decide, whether it was a wonderful statute or not. We were asked to decide, could there be a referendum? And I thought we couldn't, whether it was a good statute or not. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, you say, you know, you, you paid attention to, obviously, what was being published in the newspapers. As a Supreme Court justice, is that something, do you keep, a, on, you know, a pulse on where the winds are blowing, or do you try to keep yourself neutral and just, you know, down in the weeds so you can make decisions that are, in your mind, fair and, you know, aligned with the, the law and the Constitution, or... Or do you kind of keep an eye on where things are going? Well, I, I, I know this sounds terrible. I don't think I was keeping an eye on where things were going. My mm -hmm. job was very narrow. Mm -hmm. It was to determine if this statute said X or if it said Y. Right. Maybe better, did it say X or anti-X? And whether it was a good statute or a bad statute was not my business. That oh, was yeah. what the legislature is for. Although that brings me to another curious, I think James was going to want to jump in there, but I'm curious in talking about this, um, James and I discussed like what makes a good, you know, Supreme Court justice. Obviously in, at the state level, we're voting on, 
you know, people to represent us at, at that level. How how do voters know who to choose? You know, other than if you if you haven't followed the whole career, what kind of research and what tells a, a voter, you know, so who might it's be- it's a hard question as to how do the people know, mm-hmm. um, especially because the very nature of the of the job is that if somebody asks you when you're running for the Supreme Court, do you think people should be able to carry handguns? You, you have to answer them. I'm sorry, I can't answer that because I'm going to be the, uh, potentially a judge on a case just like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So it is very difficult for people uh, to sometimes understand what you're going to be doing. Right. And, uh, you know, so it's it's tough. That's, that itself is a great debate in the country, whether or not Supreme Court justice should be elected. The federal government doesn't do that. Mm-hmm. They have president nominates and the Senate then votes on them. Um, so they there never is an election uh, with regard to a Supreme Court justice at the United States Supreme Court, but all of our justices... And some states follow that model. Uh, Michigan ha- has had elections since, I think, 1908. Well, wait a minute. Maybe 1848. Um, one, one of the things that was real interesting that accounted for the great popularity of elections um, was slavery because the people wanted to, uh, the citizens of the state, uh, wanted to be sure that uh, nothing like Dred Scott would ever happen again. And uh, they thought if they kept their hands on the justice by being able to unelect them, if you will, um, that they could avoid that kind of outcome. So that still gives uh, at least some type of popular um, constraint upon Supreme Court justices, even if we're really unclear about the judicial interpretations that they're likely to make while we're voting on them. Um, But it really seems that uh, the Supreme Court in general uh, stands outside of what is popular on a given day, which means that the Overton window that they're facing is completely different from what legislators and governors are trying to do, where they're constantly trying to say, you know, do people like this? Is, Is this acceptable? Is this politically feasible? Or will I suffer negative consequences from it? So what really are the bounds that uh, the justices have when they're making decisions? Um, you know, uh, I, I mean, uh, go ahead. Well, I, I've talked a little bit about this already, but what isn't before the court is whether or not you like the statute. Mm-hmm. I, 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 it is unimportant, my view, in the example we've been using a lot of here, whether or not it's a good idea to have people carrying handguns. It just doesn't make any difference what a judge thinks about that. The question that he's supposed to be deciding is whether or not this uh, statute, whether or, not the, whether or not the United States Constitution or the Michigan Constitution has something to say about this. And um, that's, that's, a, you know, that's, a, that's an important thing that people sometimes overlook. Let's take an example that's probably easier to work with we, of course, have trials in, in Michigan and in the United States when uh, uh, someone kills someone. And uh, the, the question before, when it's on appeal isn't whether or not you like the outcome. That is, the judge likes the outcome. Maybe you think it had been a good idea this guy was killed, who you know, 
did terrible things to small children or something of that kind. But that isn't really what the judge is doing. The judge is looking at this thing, trying to determine the question that has been asked of him. For example, did this person get properly charged with this crime? Did he have an idea of what the, what the crime was? Did he have a fairly selected jury? That's what the judge is doing. That's what the judge is looking at. And, and good judges, of which there are a great many, uh, limit themselves to that question. And the general public gets unhappy with them because they just want to be sure that this person who did this terrible thing gets punished. And that's a different question than the one the judge has. Do you feel like there's been any change in how judges view their job? I mean, I know that that's what they should be doing. And I see more on a national level where the politics come into it and kind of determining whether they like things or not. But do you think by and large on a state level that, you know, our Supreme Court has done a good job of keeping themselves, you know, in the position where they're not making the determination of do I like this or not, but they are looking at just the merits of was this fairly tried? What, you know, did they follow the rules and all of that? Or, and do you see a change? Do you think that that's changed over time or is it continuing in a, in a good direction, in a healthy direction? Um, Alicia, I'm not sure I understand the question. Is is the question, are the courts doing a good job with the issues that they have? Well, in remaining fair, like, and not letting their personal biases. I think you hear a lot of accusations that, the like, judge. at the, like, U.S., you know, Supreme Court level of, oh, there's politics in it, you know, and, and it shouldn't be. You know, I think we can all agree that that's the case. Do you think it's staying, that our Supreme Court is staying, you know, at the level of deciding on not personal preference, not on political bias, but on, you know, like you said, doing the good job of removing themselves from the question and just looking at the merits of the case and deciding that way. I feel like a lot of people start talking about like activist judges and, you know, get these sirens going. Is that something that's just a buzzword or do you think that's something that we are moving towards? I, I think it, I, I think your question is, are, are judges doing what they're supposed to do or are they... Mm -hmm letting the question whether or not they believe in this person's guilt mold over or melt over into the other decision. It depends on the judge. I mean, there are good judges and there are not good judges. I mean, it's like everything, you know, it's like car mechanics. Some do it right, some don't. Um, I think by and large in the United States, we've developed a system over all these years that works pretty good. And yes, there are mistakes that are made. There are judges who misbehave. Uh, usually out of good intentions, I might add, but they do misbehave. Um, and so they, they determine in a case with, you know, terrible facts where somebody has done something awful to small children, for, like, for example. They, they really want to make sure this person doesn't get out of jail. And so they start doing things they, that probably they shouldn't do, but it's out of good intentions, but not mm -hmm. out of proper understanding of their role. Judges are supposed to be the uh, the final adult arbiters in, in, in the political system. What happens to bad judges? What accountability do they face? Well, in our state, uh, you know, you have periodic re-election. Every eight years you have to stand for election. Um, in, the, in the United States federal system, uh, it's harder to say what accountability there is because they're a lifetime appointment. So there's more accountability in the state system here than there is in the federal system. And as I was mentioning, the infamous Dred Scott case in the 1850s 
really gave a spur to the idea that people would periodically get to vote on whether or not a judge should be retained. And so there's a good deal of that in the United States, mostly, in fact, exclusively in the state courts. There's nothing like this in the federal courts. Uh, uh, you mentioned earlier that uh, uh, the, the court gets to determine the kind of cases that it, uh, that it wants to hear. Uh, what, uh, what excites courts to hear a case? If the lower courts are dividing on how a statute should be interpreted, let's say the courts in Detroit are inclined to view uh, X on a, on a statute, and the courts in Grand Rapids are inclined to the opposite position. Uh, you want to get that resolved so that you get the same justice in Grand Rapids that you do in Detroit. So that's, what, that's a very big and important uh, reason why the court would decide this case we will hear. Do you have like a favorite case that stood out, you know, whether just for esoteric, like, oh, just was, I don't know, gleefully nerdy judge case and I loved it or something that just felt like you had made a difference? Is there, are there things in your career that really stand out as like these were the cases, you know, my favorites? Well, I don't know if they're your favorites. You maybe you remember them a little bit better. Um, it's a long time ago, um, but do you remember the the name uh, Doctor Kevorkian? Yeah, yeah. Well, when I was when I was in the Court of Appeals, this is not the Supreme Court, but I was in the Court of Appeals. I had a role in deciding that case. I was uh, the, the question in the case was whether or not the state can criminalize assisted suicide. That is to say, if, if the state enacts a statute which allows me to assist you, who are, let us say, terminally ill and mm -hmm. going through a lot of pain and suffering, to end your life early, can the state do that? Or as in, in giving me that authority, have you given me the right to be a murderer and therefore I can be convicted of murder? Uh, that, was, that was the burning issue. It was very controversial at the time. Mm -hmm. and I, Remember that case? That was uh, that was uh, you know a very very uh, hotly disagreed about statute, and uh, so I remember that one very well. And there were others that were uh, of note along the line too. But in my experience, uh, what a judge remembers about them is the legal question, not so much the emotional question. Mm -hmm. Although on that one, I guess I got a follow up question. There was a Jack Kevorkian movie uh, yeah. uh, made in Michigan with film or with taxpayer subsidies, uh, where Al Pacino got to play Jack Kevorkian. Did someone? Did they get someone to play you? You know, I'm trying to remember. I, I, I don't think so. <laughs> You're pretty awesome. Yeah. Well, I was I was not on the winning side of that thing. I, um, I was I was in dissent on the Court of Appeals. And uh, I was of the view that the Kevorkian could be tried uh, for murder. Um, and uh, the, the winning side at the Court of Appeals was that he could not. It went to the Michigan Supreme Court. And this is a long time ago. I think I'm right on this. They, they adopted the position of the dissent. That is my, my position. 
And then it went to the U.S. Supreme Court because it was a it was a United States constitutional law question, and the Supreme Court of the United States reserves the right to be able to intervene and and uh, uh, decide these questions uh, pursuant to the United States Constitution. And I think, if I'm right, I remember at the time thinking they adopted the position I was arguing. So anyway, that was that was how I remember it. And I, it's a long time ago, though. It's probably 25 years ago or something like that. Maybe more than that, actually. 30. I'm curious, during the hearings litigation, um, has there ever been a time, I mean, you go into it having a pretty good idea. You've read the briefing. You've done your research. Having a pretty good idea of how you're going to, you know, make the decision. Or do the oral arguments of the lawyers often bring up new ideas? Are, are they there just to kind of do the polish on what's already been kind of reviewed and submitted? Or does it really make a difference to hear them go back and forth and like their logic and rhetoric? Does that I think you? the most overrated thing in the American system is oral argument. <laughs> most good judges know what they're going to do. Mm -hmm. so what happens when the case gets to you? You've had a series of briefs from both of the parties. So that in the Kevorkian case, the prosecutor has briefed it. The Kevorkian side has briefed it. There's been a court of appeals decision on it, which meant that there were three judges. Well, there's a lower court decision. I forgot that. There's a lower court decision. That decision then goes to the court of appeals where there are three judges. Then it comes to the Supreme Court where there are seven. Uh, and you've had an extensive amount of briefing. Plus, you've had your own staff, if you're on the Supreme Court, uh, that was usually three or four in number, three or four uh, lawyers, who have made a recommendation to you, and that has gone true. That has been true with the other six uh, justices too. So there's been a lot of uh, a, a lot of uh, thinking about this, and um, it's rare that anything will be said in oral argument. Not not never, but very rarely mm -hmm. that something new comes up in oral argument. Won't uh, follow that up with if oral argument is underrated and. Again, like overrated. the questions that you're dealing overrated. with are overrated. So overrated, overrated. Uh, if oral arguments are overrated, um, uh, and you're dealing with tough issues. I mean, they don't wind up at the Supreme Court unless they're, 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 there's some controversy around around here. Um, how about deliberations between judges before rulings? Like, um, it was interesting. I, is, I don't remember very much in the way of sitting down with the other judges before the case was argued. Um, now, in, in Michigan, there's a system that is used for the making of decisions about whether or not you're going to hear a case. And, and that way you get an idea of, in a given case, what's probably going to be the vote of Judge 1, Judge 2, Judge 3, Judge 4. So you have a pretty good idea going in where they are. Um, but the idea of sitting down and sort of pre-judging the case, if you will, I mean that in a good way, not a bad way, um, there really isn't that much of it. It usually happens after the oral argument. And is there a lot of persuasion that goes on between judges after that? Yeah, there is. The writing of the actual opinion is a, is a bit of work because you have to get four at least to agree on one version. And so there's a lot of back and forth on that. It might take months. 
So how much, like, in the day-to-day life of a Supreme Court judge, where do you spend most of your time? Is it in, you know, the writing of opinions? Is it in the reviewing of the briefs? Is it all kind of divided equally? Or is there, is there anything unexpected or surprising there that the average person might not appreciate about the actual position? I think the greatest misconception is people think you're in court a lot. You're not. Uh, These jobs are jobs of research. So in a week, you might be in court one day. Uh, Now, trial judges are in court every day. But not the appellate judges. The appellate judges are basically given what sort of feel like academic jobs. You know, they're asked to analyze this in terms of the law. And so to look up the law and read the law and see how it applies to this set of facts, that's a basically uh, a um, sort of job that is not the kind of job that you have in a courtroom. What What do young lawyers... Oh, well, sorry, go ahead. No, I was saying, like, what kind of path, like, what kind of pre-Supreme you know, Supreme Court career, you know, judges follow kind of different path through? Is there like a, a background that's better than another to prepare a judge to be on the Supreme Court? Take a lot of English classes. <laughs> really? I think the single thing to prepare for a life as a, as a lawyer is to take a lot of English classes, mm-hmm. read a lot, learn how to use the language, because that's what's going to be going on in your life. Uh what do young lawyers need to do if they want to become a Supreme Court justice besides take English classes? <laughs> well, you got to make you, you have to I mean, you have to do some things which position you so that you can be thought uh, you can be thought about for this when an opening comes up. But I, I don't know what you'd tell somebody who wanted to be a Supreme Court justice. I it, it's it's uh, it's like shooting a rabbit, two rabbits with one bullet. It's, you know, it's just very difficult to orchestrate your life in such a way that you end up on the Supreme Court. All right, Cliff, thank you for uh, for coming with us, answering Elise's questions and helping us understand what's within the Overton Great. window. Thank you. And good luck. Thank you. I really do appreciate it. It's always helpful to hear um, just a more expert opinion. I feel like I was just telling James to you as I was doing more digging in. I, I may not work in, you know, the policy world or political field, but I try to stay pretty abreast of what's going on in politics. And even for myself, it's like often there's a lot going on. And so for the Supreme Court, it's like looking at the the website that tells, you know, current cases, what's been decided in, in sifting through all the information. There's just a lot, you know, to determine like what's really relevant. What what does this mean to me as a citizen on a you know, day-to-day level? It's, it's interesting to just to hear hear more and some of the questions you know I'm familiar with but some of it's like yeah it's, it's just kind of one of those things I feel like is in the background of everyone's lives and you don't really pay attention to until something big hits the news but it's always ongoing so it's always interesting to hear more well great thank you for listening to this episode of the Overton Window a podcast from the Mackinac Center please subscribe and rate For more, check us out at www.mackinaw.org. That's Mackinaw with a C, like the island.